So what do you think? About this chapter? Mm-hmm. Okay. I have a lot of thoughts about this. Go. I'm so excited to talk about this chapter because I feel like my journey reading this chapter was a huge roller coaster. <laughs> because at the very beginning, I started reading this chapter and I said, this is so boring. Who cares? <laughs> and then literally like five paragraphs later, I was in. Because I feel like John Connington is a really interesting guy. And I was talking to you a little bit about this before we were recording Classic. And then I stopped because I was like, this is something that we should probably talk about on the podcast. John Connington is a really interesting guy. And a lot of the, there's a lot in this chapter that has major implications for things that we'll see play out in the next two books. And so this chapter is really important. But if you think about like where we are in the story, it's hard to like really get into what his storyline is because we spend so little time with him. And it's like, why does this matter? You know, why does this like, place that we have to look up on a map because we're like not super familiar with why does that matter right now when in our reading order we just got off that Cersei chapter and she's about to do her walk of atonement there's a couple chapters between that in the actual reading or in the actual book itself. yeah it's eight or nine chapters yeah but I just feel like presented to you in this way it was more exciting than before this it's more exciting the the more time we like I sat in this chapter and thought about what this means for a song of ice and fire. The more interesting this chapter became to me. What I'm trying to say is, um, and we talk about this before. It's like sometimes I feel like George R. R. Martin will just like introduce themes and people and characters and stuff like that as like throwaway, not throwaway, but to enrich the everything that's going on in the story and not necessarily as something that like, hey, you really need to be paying attention to this and. To me, this is like we're at the nearing the end of the story. It's like, why do we need to like care about all these other people and these other things? And I right. know we've got like Fagon, and there's a ton of implications for what this could potentially mean, potentially to like when it all boils down to who's going to sit on the throne. It's easy to, to dismiss these chapters, and it's easy, like especially as the first time you're reading through this, to dismiss these chapters because like who cares? Well, you're also in a flow of many chapters like this. It's not just that you're – it's the, the normal ebb and flow of the series and then all of a sudden the Griffin reborn. Right. And you're, you're you're thinking, whoa, what is this? But there's also the the momentum of having what you were saying, the same, sort of chapterized version of what happens within the chapters. You're talking about the folks that you meet that you know necessarily are – they're there as supporting evidence to a greater picture, a greater picture that we could break into, that we could start to think about. We could start to think about when, last week when we were talking about um, the way that the chips were going to fall for Mason Olena. We could we could start to think about the bannermen that we've met in the Reach that we've heard anecdotally over the whole histories of A Song of Ice and Fire from the Hedge Knight till now. And we can start to guess how it's going to fall for them later based on who likes each other mm-hmm. and how they talk to each other. It sort of informs it because that information is there. Right. And so we soak that stuff in, but maybe on a first run through for, for plot, as you like to say, mm-hmm. you're not necessarily appreciative of all those things because there's a part of you that knows that you have the time to go back and appreciate it more and also there's more story that's coming and you know that as long as you're alive you're going to be able to open these books at any time and go back and so it maybe doesn't 
make you feel as special as it could. And so when the, when it happens in a chapter version, it's like, oh, okay, but I really want to get to Tyrion or I really want to see what's right, happening with Daenerys. Like matters to me right now as mm. somebody who doesn't really know what's going on. What, so. what made you, other than that, other than the fact that we're, we're talking about it on the show today, what about the chapter made you feel that way where you're thinking this is a worthy addition to the way I've been feeling about everyone else? Because you've been with Arya for years, for example, and you probably really want to be with her some more and know what's happening with her at this point in the story. Right. And instead, we're doing this. I have to click back and you can hear every click <laughs> because I'm on a different laptop than I normally am. Um, trying to click back to the beginning of the chapter to like when that actually happened. So this chapter starts off and there it's like a siege basically. And John Connington and co the golden company are taking Griffin's roost. And once I kind of realized like a couple paragraphs in, there's this line that says, um, this is going to drive me nuts, the whole podcast, <laughs> the clicking. Um, a couple paragraphs in, it says, Griff expected to lose 100 men, maybe more. They lost four. Like, yeah. When you're like, so oh, awesome. okay, so these guys are like, they came in here and just like swept the place. So oh, this yeah. is kind of cool. So Different than what we've had so far. It's a, a new vibe, which is interesting. It's a new vibe. And I think it's a new energy. It's like a whole host of new... I mean, we were in, there's, it's a whole host of new characters. I mean, not like totally new everybody, but there's, we're just in a place that we haven't really been in and a situation that we kind of forget about, you know. There wasn't also a lot of preamble to this. We weren't expecting it in this way. There, there was yeah. mention of all of it, but the way that it was the plan, for example, and the geography of Griffin's Roost and the things that we were going to have to face, we weren't necessarily anticipating it in this way. So neither it was, it sort of, was anybody right. in Westeros. And that's oh, the whole yeah. thing about why. I, this all works and so so that's what you think because i was wondering and i i guess we can just talk about it now at what point in the chapter for you did it was, it was early for me did you think oh man it was my mind changed maybe your mind didn't change about them but my mind changed about their plan in general because of how effective they were at this and because of how serious john con was and because of his clarity of the plan and how well i th thought he was executing it up until the point i was confused about what was going to happen with young griff and then it turns out that the plan is a go and mm -hmm. it's even more amped than it was before for me their their effectiveness i was like okay i believe this could be something this could be but then i started to think there's four, I have four questions for okay. you wrapped up in there. But then I started to think maybe it could just be that they were really, really, really taken off guard. Right, right. I think that's such a good question. So, cause I was going to ask you the same thing, but just like when, if and when they reach, for example, at the end of the chapter, they're going into Storm's End. So like, how is something like that going to play out? If and when they're going to be up against like a real, force like right. a real castle right that's not ready for or that is ready for them you know can the golden company do without the elephants that homeless harry is very upset about right notably can't notably stop upset about, about the elephants can they stand up and that's one of the biggest a major theory or a major like question coming out of this chapter is going to be like what happens next for John Con and what happens next for like this whole is Dorne going to join them? Mm -hmm. What's going on? At, are they actually taking Storm's End? How does that actually go? Does that mean anything? How do people react to that kind of thing? And so I feel like it's going to be interesting to see if like the Golden Company can really hold up their own against 
somebody else. It was an interesting time for us to get this amount of confidence. Like I said, by the way, did you feel confident in their, in general, their, their whole quest in Westeros and the idea of what they were accomplishing? Cause it's been a while since we checked back in with them. For me, I was excited about, like I said, the plan and how it was executed for, did you, did that happen at all? Or did you go right to wondering about the fact that maybe they weren't well prepared or the people they were going against couldn't have been that organized in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's a good. So I think about it in the context of where we were last chapter. So last chapter, we get kind of like this, Cersei gets kind of this download of what's going on. They think it's Stannis or they think that his, him or his forces are causing all this problems down here. And when you think about that in the context of John Con being really intense about making sure they're not flying any banners, that people don't know who they are like this, that, that they can kind of come in unnoticed. Like, who are these guys? Mm-hmm. That's such a smart tactic. And oh, I feel yeah, like, for sure. especially with somebody like him and quite and the upper hand right now with, <laughs> they could so easily like fire and blood. I know they don't have dragons, but like they've got Aegon Targaryen, maybe apparently, but they choose not to. And I feel like that that's really smart. And so for as long as they can kind of keep themselves under wraps before they hit the next thing, this was a very easy fall. It happened within minutes. It was over within minutes. So, what do you think about the effectiveness of their plan? Like whether or not it's going to work. How uh, half maesters filling him on the info? Mm-hmm. Either he's downloading it from all the ravens he just received, or he's just reading everyone's old mail. Yeah, probably old mail. Right. He's spent some time up there. Also, I don't trust him, so I don't really know. Right. Also, they killed the other maester like real fast. Really, really, really fast. Yeah, which is kind of funny, but when you think about it. I love that like, passage. Yeah. It was the best But then when you start to think about it, you're like, wait, me. that might be a little bit messed up. Like, why do they do that? Yeah. There's a lot of suspect going on, but there's so much epicness going on at the same time. So it's hard to stay focused on the small stuff. So you're asking me. Yeah. Just like, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> a lot rides on whether or not they can be successful there's like a couple of things that really need to fall in place and i feel like doran is a huge piece for them into whether or not they can like get some sort of potential ally i mean things are very much deteriorating around westeros at a pretty rapid pace and so if they can get a strong ally like that that's a big contender the whole grayscale situation that John Con is dealing with, that's a big contender. His own like ego with all of his walks down memory lane and mm-hmm. like just the motivation of why he's here in the first place. Yeah. That's a big contender into how all of this is going to play out. And so I think that, so we get a little bit of, we, we did this pretty recently. It was back in August because I was looking back at the notes. The whole Ariane stuff that we talked about, we get, Sample chapters from the Winds of Winter. If you are not interested in talking about the Winds of Winter, then this is a good time to not listen to the podcast anymore. <laughs> That's but, how people are um, supposed to do spoiler alerts. <laughs> you say it before you say the thing. But um, we get a glimpse of kind of like how this situation does play out through Arianne's perspective as she's here representing Dorne. Annoyingly not enough, though. Not enough info, Connington. though, because she never actually meets up with them. No, so but we don't so have like, the full picture still. Right. Right. And a lot of stuff is like going on. So she's like trying to meet up with them and she's headed to Storm's End. I think we can kind of like guess and where that direction is going. But I still think that the whole Dorn, the question of Dorn and whether or not they're actually going to 
potentially side with them and what that might mean for Daenerys and all these kinds of things are still very much up in the air, even with some of those sort of answers that we get from those winds of winter, winds of winter sample chapters. I think those just like point us, continue to point us in that direction of this is something that we need to be paying attention to. And so it's a crucial part of the plan too. Just this transition from where things were before and where they could be. Mm-hmm. And right now it feels really dramatic because I feel like John Connington is the perfect person to have the story told through. I think it's so cool that he connects this past era of the universe, but also being such an important part of the new era. And not not just, like I said, being a part of it, like the rest of the swords from the Golden Company, but literally being number two. And making decisions like he's number one. Right. I'm so curious about the maester at this point. And because I'm talking about the scale of John Con's reach. And like I said before, I think a lot of people were probably not completely aware of what these guys were really trying to do and what was going to happen once they actually got swords behind them. And still we're not quite there yet because this was, there wasn't that much opposition, but feeling the transition from the bottom of the hill and making your way from the beginning outside of this place to the highest tower in Griffin's Roost and it being such an absolute victory and going through his mind and it being such a, a smooth transition of thought and execution of intention and it also seemingly being so harmonious with the universe around him. Very few people, whenever they brought everyone forth, going against them except uh, one of his cousins, I think, saying that my father's going to kill you, which was also one of the most hilarious moments. Yeah. Think about a guy yeah, yeah. in that situation <laughs> just being like very, very uh, up upfront about Good for it. Him, My, honestly. Yeah, of course. Yeah, like yeah. well fairly well after the fact. Yeah, 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 exactly. But also lucky that it wasn't a Greyjoy that landed here. Right. Because that would have been right. absolutely terrible. That was cool for me. The uh the fact that the the celebration feast was also low key and that he was also so low key of a person. That's kind of the the point that I'm making is that he was almost the perfect person to have this be told through. He was the perfect person to have this be told through. For this guy to exist, it was so good and I think that the relationship between him and Rhaegar mm-hmm. and unfolding and however it does, I'm sure only through this perspective, probably only through this perspective, will add more and more layers to the the reasons why my new appreciation for John Connington has sprouted. Yeah. But when I think about him, this is what I think about. I've always thought about this chapter. I've always thought about Griffin, Griffin's Roost sort of being – this like a, this a greater adjective surrounding him, imagining him with his red hair. And I have a much clearer picture just revisiting it in this way. And I hope that we get that same sort of attention to detail in his character and, and harmonious vibe from the story moving forward, especially if they end up doing cool stuff, mm-hmm. if they end up doing cool stuff. I'm sure they will. Do you feel that way after reading this or in, in, does it is it different than you felt before, or is this all me? I think that this chapter is really weighty because for a couple of reasons. The first is because John Con to me comes off as you're kind of talking about him and his vibe in this chapter. He comes off to me as somebody who's like a true knight, somebody who's genuinely genuinely trying to do good. I mean, he they take this castle and he's doing everything in his power to make sure that everybody stays alive. That the only way. They're going to kill their prisoners if they basically beg for death, which is why that whole Maester thing is kind of an interesting question because there's, he's so careful throughout this whole chapter to make sure that all the prisoners are just like taken care of and they're not just going to immediately 
chop all their heads off or something like that. Like he's trying really hard. And then, you know, there's a point a little bit later in the chapter when he's like, some of you will know me, the rest will learn. <laughs> and he's just kind of, you know, he's like addressing his people. Like he's really just trying to like do the right thing as right. he takes over this place. Um, and so I feel like he's absolutely exemplifying this cliche almost of like what it is to be a true knight while while on the inside he's being so deeply spurred by this very very personal thing and this place is very personal to him and his reason for being here is very personal to him and the reason for him to do anything at all he's been living with this deep guilt for in exile for so long about how he wasn't able to execute for Rhaegar, this person that he, I mean, he describes as somebody who he deeply loves. And so I think that he's got like a very personal vendetta and personal agenda that is spurred literally by just like, like he's not, he's not worried about anybody else in my mind. Like he's not really, he's not even worried about like Fagon or anything. I mean, he is, but he's he's not really worried. Like that's not why he's doing it. Like he doesn't believe necessarily in him as a person, or he's not like it doesn't hate Cersei. You know, right. he's doing this because he feels like he messed up the first time around, and he's been living with his guilt, and so now he's trying to. And so to to me, that's like such a powerful force, and yeah, that's it is. something that's like you don't go down once for that without kicking and screaming and so it, it seems like that's the kind of thing that's going to put you in the end game and if not in the end game that's the kind of thing that's going to really hurt when it hurt. goes down yeah or oh. that you're really going to no. like throw everything you've got at the wall to Man. make that happen because it's so deeply personal so i mean that's kind of the the what i was picking up from this chapter and it the chapter also made me think how deeply i would love I know that, you know, this is kind of like a cliche thing to say in A Song of Ice and Fire, but it's like having a book about Robert's Rebellion. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And this just brought so sure. back so many of those yeah. feelings of what that would be oh, like. Oh, when they were describing the Stony Sept and what mm -hmm. went down. Yeah, that was so cool. Yeah. That was so cool. Swept down on Stony, Stony Sept. Yeah, uh, he, I don't know. I feel like he was a late bloomer in the story for me because he was the guy that was getting annoyed by Tyrion for the longest time. He's just sort of like a grumpy dad in the situation. I mean, of course, we didn't get his perspective, so we didn't know how deep his strategy lied. But Tyrion always respected him. So he's still grumpy about Tyrion in this chapter, yeah, though. Is. He's thinking about his grayscale, kind of. Dude. So. Okay, so the grayscale. Yeah. Do you think that he would be this stalwart of a person? at least for our perspective right now, and also so decisive about his plan, so decisive in a really intoxicating way, if he didn't have grayscale? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Really? I don't think, yeah, to me, his grayscale, I don't know. I, I think that's just something he's trying to hide. I don't think that that's adding any sense of urgency to his actions. Um, he's trying really hard to keep it under wraps and it, he calls for like what's the it's like the worst wine that you have oh, yeah. and they're like are you sure and he's yeah. like uh, yes extremely that was so funny want to draw attention to the fact that he has it i, I love how he came to that conclusion by the way that that's the best way that he could handle well he was overhearing lamore telling or helping Tyrion because they were afraid that he might have been mm -hmm. touched by the stone people right that was that's such a, a sly little way to transition into self-care. It's smart because there was a passage that really stood out to me about Grayscale. And, you know, we talked about it before, and it's something that's pretty well known. But 
he he says queers it seemed men who would carefully face battle and oh yes or to carefully cheerfully face battle and risk death to rescue a companion would abandon that same companion in a heartbeat if you were known to have grayscale i should have let that dwarf drown yeah and i feel like i just have a lot of questions about like to me it's pointing in the direction of just like grayscale in general having a much larger impact on the story later down the road because we've got somebody like John Con who's got it. We've got somebody like with Shereem, think about what Val was saying mm-hmm. so pointedly. Yeah, we've seen ago. a couple, you know, over the last couple of chapters, a couple um mentions of it. And so, you know, how contagious is it? It's all like very top of mind in the middle of a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. But it's like how contagious is it? Is he gonna spread this everywhere? How serious is this actually like you know, it's something that's serious enough that he can't openly speak of it. And so um, I'm just wondering kind of what what that might play out in the later books, if that Me does too, for do sure. anything. No, I've been thinking about it a lot, too. It, I'm wondering if it's something that we'll get into or if it's going to just be a flourish of things that are happening to sort of fill out the natural world and to also add some complexity to things. It's really cool if it does. And I like the multiple layers, like John Con coming back himself. It's kind of like how Shireen has that reminder throughout the story from this thing from another place. And now it's active in someone mm-hmm. and someone that we had, like, like I said, I had this sort of renewed vigor in, in liking as a character and I'm hoping that he can do what he wants to do before it takes over or puts him in a situation where they either get rid of him or he just loses all influence. That's the thing that probably is the most troublesome about this. And it's so real. And that's something that I really loved about this chapter. And I'm thinking about him concentrating, just, just the idea of him sitting with his hands, like on his knees, leaning over and concentrating. That to me is the vibe of this whole chapter. And he's sort of able to execute it and uh, get to the point where he's able to look at his grayscale and think about it. And I can imagine what, what it must've been like when all that stuff, all this stuff was going down the boat and then to be in the situation where you're this close to some kind of retribution, mm-hmm. whether or not he really believes in Fagon, I'm not sure. And to get that close and to be stopped potentially by something that's not even going to kill you immediately, but that's going to take away, like, like he was saying, everyone's support in you. Maybe they wouldn't throw him over the, the into the, the, like the turtle pit and let him be devoured by these large snapping turtles, but they'd exile him or, something. or just stop listening to him. Yeah. They just stop listening to him, which would be really weird. But think about it. Once you become a dead man walking, what it's like to actually he already, lose that influence. But he already is like, he already was. I mean, you think about what happened to him exactly. after Robert's rebellion. I mean, yeah. he really doesn't have anything to lose. And that's another thing Crazy. to, when you kind of think about like, What's he going to do or accomplish or is he going to actually make anything happen like we were talking about just a few minutes ago? I mean, he doesn't have anything to lose. And that's kind of the argument. You look at like whether or not Dorne is going to throw their hat in the ring for Mm -hmm. somebody like him and for Fagon. They have so much more. Duran's like very particular and he has so much more like he's very slow to or. He's he just spends a lot of time thinking about the decisions, the decisions he's just not very that he reckless, makes. Yeah. He's not, yeah, like he's very careful, and it's hard to fault him for that when you really start to think about it. Because my first instinct was to say he's kind of a wuss, but at the same time, sure, he just doesn't of, want Dorn to blow up. He, he really likes Dorn. He likes the he loves that 
his charge as Dorne. He loves that the the reputation and that he's from Sunspear. You know, he it, it means a lot to him, and I think that he wants to wait until the final moment to make his decision. Mm-hmm. Until he really and knows. you know, if somebody like if this fails, Dorne can't just like leave and sprint across the sea like the Golden Company can. And so, John literally has nothing to lose in this scenario. I mean, he, I guess he could he lose the influence that he's worked hard to get. I to think this that point, he, I but. think he was probably afraid of losing influence when being so close to, to Fagon and this, their new plan. If, and not, not to mention potentially being killed or cast out by everyone, but, now but even Fagon's just the like, slow version, the realistic one where they don't put gloves, you know, when they put gloves on him, right? Just the, the human one of being, someone they see and sort of look away or start to feel sorry for mm-hmm. whenever things are just starting to heat up. Yeah. And right now I feel like he's fighting that momentum because eventually it's going to happen. Eventually they're going to see him without his gloves or something's going to happen. Right. Or it's going to spread up his arm or he's going to. Right. Yeah. Definitely. I wonder how long it's going to take. But it really adds a lot of spice to the storyline. Like a lot. It's like a ticking time bomb mm-hmm. that kind of follows you as you, as we go. And, you know, we saw that play out in the TV series with Jorah and then the way that takes it off is horrible but i liked how this sort of connected me to the idea of uh, a rudimentary disinfectant if the septa the sorry she's not septa if if septal more is putting vinegar on Tyrion, i feel like that's how i clean my humidifier so they're learning they're figuring things <laughs> slowly out slowly understanding the way yeah. pathogens and it might just be that it could just be that it could be a a simple infection or a complex one that they don't know about and that I don't know how to talk about, but they definitely know. Or it could be what Val thinks it is. Or it could be that. It could be something magical that's even deeper than we can imagine. I'm not sure. But it seems likely that it's something that George R. R. Martin put in the universe that's more realistic that is something technology-wise that they don't understand, which has got me opening up a whole can of worms about the glass candles and about green sight overall. Right. That's where the wiggliness is that I try to understand because – there's so much that I forget. You remember this part in the chapter where he's talking about the, uh, John Connington goes off in the sidebar, which I loved, which was a huge function of my love in the early part of this chapter. It might have been some of the, st- the stuff that you thought was boring at first. I don't know. <laughs> but when he's talking about the function of infantry and, uh, yeah. of, yeah. of arrows. Yeah. It, he was, he was comparing the size of men, the groups of men that they have. They're splitting their thousand men to 10 ships of a hundred. Mm-hmm. And he's comparing that to the idea of sending arrows instead of a, maybe a large ball or, uh, a bunch of people with swords. The arrows are this sort of compared to a large ball or a bunch of people with swords, a non-effective little sting, but added up over time could, add or could be shitty to your enemy right so breaking up all these guys creates a more staggered approach that may may not be as effective but sort of batters and the idea is strategically people smarter than me because they've been forced into fighting for some reason or they've done it themselves and they figured out over time that even though it might not seem like it's the best approach this broken up approach could be a really good approach Mm -hmm. it could add up to less casualties and it could we could use our limited number to do better than we could before by using strategy, which again was the whole beginning of this chapter, which was really satisfying when they were going up the throat of Griffin's roost. And so he's talking about that stuff. I forget why I brought that up just now. <laughs> what were we talking about just before that? Oh, great question. We were talking about grayscale. Oh yeah. Do you think we'll have a cure for it in these books? 
Ooh, uh, no. No. I'll say no. No. I'll say no because I kind of like this idea of this unfounded theory based on literally nothing of something like grayscale either infecting like a mass amount of people. Like when we talk about what's actually going to happen in the end and I we spend a lot of time talking about kind of the magic behind everything and, you know, it really is less about the politics and more about the friends you made along the way and more about kind of like the deeper, like the deeper stuff that's going on. And to me, like this idea of grayscale being used as, you know, some sort of weapon of mass destruction or wiping out large groups of people or like the stone men somehow make their way and infect everybody with grayscale. I don't know. <laughs> They're so angry. I feel like something like that is pretty interesting to me. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's used on just such a, a much broader scale, kind of for the reasons that we've been saying. I mean, it's brought up often pretty s- without any sort of real explanation about like a cure or, you know, it's this very taboo thing that people really shun from and it's very scary. And so I think it would be very interesting to kind of see that used on a broad scale because that's a pretty terrifying, even though it's a pretty slow moving thing, mm-hmm. it could be interesting. So it'd be weird if we got to the end of everything and it was still something that they don't understand, but it would also be really real because it necessarily or isn't necessarily connected to what happens with mm-hmm. the prophecies or high right. fire, et cetera. Right. Because it could just be something that just, we have to eventually deal with this right. and it helps create the, the realness of everything, but it is so prevalent. Or and, maybe we never, maybe it means nothing. Or we never like see it on a mass scale and it's like something that helps well, it means something. show the, it like shows the passage of time almost. You know what I mean? Okay. Cause like we see yeah. it's like on the tip of his fingers yeah. right now or something and you know, who knows until it's yeah. like farther. So it's like something to kind of gauge the passage of time maybe. I don't know. That could be kind of cool too, but would you cut off the fingers? <laughs> That's such a good question. Well, so he he wrestles with that same question, yeah. but then people are yeah. going to notice that his fingers are missing. Of course. Well, then, you know, you have to explain that, but it I could mean, potentially... your fingers almost got chopped off. Yeah. Today. What? Oh, yeah, the fan. Yeah. I thought you were talking so about like, another time. No, but so maybe, yeah. You're like, which time? <laughs> so, like, maybe... He could chalk it up to something. Yeah, like chalk it up to some other sort of like accident. Oh, no, yeah, that's a good point, actually, because it can happen to anyone. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be afraid of that. That sounds like a quitter's response. <laughs> He's <laughs> yeah. like, you know, I don't know how to explain that. Well, I think you could probably come up with something. You guys have a hundred swords between the 50 of you. Right. That that's is, also really hmm. stressful, though. I mean, but what's more stressful, having to hide from everybody? And, you know, like we were saying, the potential of like him losing all the momentum that he's finally gotten back yeah because he can lose so much people find out that he's got Christ uh, unpack that know. that quote of his you know mm-hmm. it's not necessarily just about murder it's about the whole spectrum of involvement with things and i feel like it's not just getting cast out by danny it's it's there's so much about dead man walking that's baked into this world that he's trying to avoid and he's the perfect person for this position it's like the lecture that uh not the lecture the I don't know, the maester, when, when Holden was telling him all the great things about him and why he would be a, g- a good candidate for marrying someone, oh, yeah. <laughs> is that whole thing. His response to that was one <laughs> of my not. favorite moments of the whole <laughs> chapter. He goes, he's like, um, he basically just like stares off into the, into the thing. It's, it's like a half second of thinking and then he has this whole dialogue on the inside. 
It says John Connington's answer was a long, cold stare. <laughs> and then he starts to think about how no companion could like see his grayscale. Like he doesn't want anyone to see it, even a wife or a companion. If we're going to talk about it. I forgot that that's where his brain immediately goes. Yeah. So do you think that that's most of the reason why he said no to this offer? No. I mean, there's a 10 contri- that You know how much can be packed into that long, cold stare? A lot. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, like, that's like a lifetime's worth of. Like, think, think about being a different person. Yeah. That's why I'm glad we got him in this chapter. Because this point of view of the of the way that the siege was done, if you could call it that, the way that they took over Griffin's Roost. It wasn't a siege. They just came in and took the keys from I mean, someone. It sounds, basically, that's what it sounds. Someone that's how it's described the here. The, the 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 way that it happened and the the frame of mind that he had, I, it was time for this. Mm-hmm. I wanted to understand someone from this perspective and give me a little bit more color and context in Westeros. Like, oh yeah, these dudes do exist, and then they're not only like Randall Tarley. They're not only like Tywin Lannister. They can be like him, and he can still be dealing with all the stuff that he's dealing with. Right. But for the grayscale to be the the front of mind reason to sort of resist that is so revealing. The thing that he thinks so about. So revealing. I mean. He's really freaked out about it. I wonder how much. Wouldn't you how much, Of too? course. Oh, yeah. It's freaky. It's freaky. And that's why I asked you if you'd have your fingers cut off. Would if you? It was, if, Did we answer that for if you? If I was scared enough that it was going to kill me. Yeah. Then probably. Yeah. I know it would really suck to live without fingers. But how could it technically spread if that's where it was? Well, that's what we don't know. It's like, exactly. we don't know how it spreads necessarily within you or how it spreads to other people mm-hmm. even. And so, or how contagious it is or things like that. Like we just don't have any sort of answers. The to problems that. with these maesters, whether the ones in Old Town or whether they're stationed all over, I, I don't know where the rot necessarily is, but they know a lot of stuff that they're just not telling people in general. <laughs> <laughs> so it's their fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not grayscale necessarily, but I just put a lot to it. I just put a lot of annoyance to it. It's like slowing the pace of everything else. Sure. Because they have this, uh, protective, they, they're protecting this for their, for their own power. They have this like wealth of knowledge that they want to be able to use. To... Right. They want to be able to use and, and sort of control it in a way that retains their order. Right. The internet would be really bad for them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, really well, bad. this is so off topic. We should I talk. I want to, I want to talk about, uh, what's his name? What's the guy, Belacuaro? Yeah, that exact guy. Belacuaro. Oh, that guy? (laughs) I got this. I want to talk about Black Balak and the bringing the Ravens down. One of the most satisfying ideas and then execution of a plan that I've read. Okay. I love the idea of you guys arriving at Griffin's Roost, taking over the place where you used to run things for a small amount of time before all that went down. We don't have to get into that. But to go there and to not only, like you said before, but to have the wherewithal to do it without the banners. So we're still not quite invested in this Westerosian adventure yet, but we're, we are, we haven't quite, we're not quite there yet to get there and to be like, all right, let's really try to do this well. Let's not only take over and not have too many of us die, but can we get the best archers possible? To bring these birds down and for them to bring down all of the ravens successfully. And then the passage that we tweeted, I don't have a copy and pasted in front of me, but for then for it to end in the way that it did, I feel like George R. R. Martin was flexing so hard with his just sort of swagger, his medieval swagger, if that makes any sense. When he was like, all the birds came down and then the maester was the only thing that didn't leave. It was the last thing. Should to I, I got it in yeah, front of me, read, read it. Yeah. It was over within minutes. 
Griff rode up the throat on a white courser behind homeless Harry Strickland. As they neared the castle, he saw a third raven flap from the maester's tower, only to be feathered by Black Balak himself. Feathered, come on. <laughs> no more messages, he told Sir Franklin Flowers in the yard. The next thing to come flying from the maester's tower was the maester. The way his arms were flapping, he may have been mistaken for another bird. That was the end of all resistance. I mean, that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. For him to arrive in the yard like that and at, sort of at speed to be updated on what's happening. It was just, the, it was so satisfying in the way they carried it out. And even, even Homeless Harry was impressed by the swiftness of their victory. That's what I'm talking about. He's yeah. looking around. He's like, all right. Right. We but is this going to instill false confidence into, it, it, I mean. It gave me false confidence for sure. Because I, I confidently wrote down a question that I tried to ask you before. But it was something like, at what point did you realize they're a real threat to Westeros? Right. Well, because like, I think, I think John Con, he says, like, he, I think he understands that this was easy for them. Uh-huh. I think he knows that, but yeah. it's like his men are, do they, Hopefully they know too, you know, I don't really know if it seems to me like they also have the, the element of surprise. It's just in general with how wiggly Westeros is right now mm-hmm. before uh, I was going to ask you about the bows or at least mention the bows to everyone because I thought that it was cool that George mentioned it, but he was comparing the golden heart bow, which is a, a kind of tree. And he was comparing that to the the distance of a dragon bone bow. And it was like a little nod toward creating a bigger universe when it comes to equipment and the difference between the effectiveness and certain kinds of equipment of equipment in these stories. And that's kind of like the grayscale for me. And that's kind of like the glass candles and mm-hmm. the green sight and all of that for me. It's sort of connected in the same way. Dragons are let's say that they came out of the moon. I don't know where they're from, but their their bones are crazy, right? And their hide is crazy. They're super rare. But just because they're super rare, it doesn't mean that their bones are the best for bows. You know, like we found this amazing rib bone and it's bent so well and it shoots just 12 to 15 yards further than Golden Heart, just like your favorite video game. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way, but it is that way. And grayscale is a naturally occurring thing, just like this stuff. And it's not understood. And I'm sure it's a lot worse than other stuff that we know about that they're able to sort of handle. The glass candles could be the same sort of thing. Maybe it's a naturally occurring thing that they don't want to talk about or even say to us clearly yet because we haven't got all the winds of winter chapters yet. That sort of thing has me wondering that the way we understand grayscale and other stuff like that is navigable. Just like he sort of has a little moment to navigate us through the, how the natural world affects their equipment, at least that there is a hierarchy to stuff is basically what I'm trying to say. Okay. So there's a clear hierarchy to stuff, right? The way that it works, right? There's some natural things. There's some unnatural things and the the things that we don't really understand. They are magical, but we know we can tap on a dragon bone. I know that that shoots further. Whoever the craziest first guy to think of that, cool, good on him. Mm-hmm. But I know it came from a corpse. It's like, well, let's not waste this. You guys know the thing about the buffalo. We got to use all the parts of it. Let's not waste this. But it makes sense. That makes sense. So maybe, for example, maybe a glass candle is a part of a dragon's body or something or a different kind of animal, maybe like a fireworm or something else. And there's only a certain amount of these creatures that grew underneath old, old Valyria. And they're so magical, but it could be a membrane of some sort that like connects it to other sorts of deposits of energy from the rest of the planet. I'm not sure, but 
at least shows that the stuff that we can touch like a dragon bone is way less confusing to us because we know how it works. But grayscale could be from that same sort of idea, just a part of nature that we don't know about. And so could the way that they're accessing the tree as well. Right. We don't have the information. And it seems magical because we don't have the information. But how magical is it really? Or is it just a technology like an alien tech that you don't know how to use? So you're just talking about in a magical way. Well, I think that once we get down the road and hopefully better understand either like through somebody like Bran or some of the other maesters or through just experiences, some of like somebody who's got grayscale. I mean, I think that something that would be really cool is for those mysterious things to feel normal and to like come to light and to be explained. You know, I think would yeah. be kind of interesting. Yeah, and, so, and that's why I asked about the grayscale because I'm yeah. wondering if at some point there's almost forced to figure out more about it and it becomes so much more human to us because mm-hmm. of it. They know how to treat it and mm-hmm. it's like, oh, you get, I mean, but it's like that with any sort of, when you look at the history of medicine, period, I mean, so much of medicine for a long time was something that felt unknown and, un, you know, they use a lot of methods that are wild to us now because we understand the science behind mm-hmm. it. But back then, it's like that's all they had. It's still and, like that. Mo- modern dieting is folklore. For sure. It's still for sure, folklore for sure. like this. For sure. For sure. And so, you know, who's to say what's going to happen with something like that along the way? But I don't know. It's like I was saying, I think it would be cool to see that play a bigger role in the sense of whether it's so it's like real stuff down it's yeah. so, so real that they have to and it's a real thing that they have to deal with and i think that a lot of these a lot of the elements that's so interesting about a song of ice and fire that are coming to be which i think some people might be disappointed about are these sort of modern things that we think about through our perspective being forced into their perspective through crazy things happening in their planet whereas it's our way of life and our technology and the way things have gone for the past hundred something years Really, a, a while, a lot more than that, but seemingly more concentrated because of the familiarity of the technology being close to each other like it is now. Theirs is just exploding. It's just happening in a crazy way. And that might have a lot to do with the fact that these guys are doing such a good job because mm-hmm. like Arian says later to, I forget who she says it to. It could have been just a thought in her Winds of Winter sample chapters when she's thinking about the strength of, of these guys. And believe me, when they're sending the letter in this chapter to Dorne, I feel pretty confident on their behalf, too, because it's... What else is going on? What else is going on? What better plan do you have? Look how good of a job we're doing, etc. But like she says, you guys are using cell swords. You're using mm-hmm. the Golden Company. Mm-hmm. And she goes on to talk about their track record, which I don't even know if we have to go that far. I don't even know if it has to be about the track record. I think really John nails it in this chapter when he's thinking about what would happen when they actually win. The Halden says that they have all this stuff to promise to people, the usual stuff, he says. We can do the usual stuff, promise people lands and titles. But he says, I know we could do that, but we also have... All of these people from outside of Westeros that don't follow any of the same ideas that these people follow, certainly not the rules once we've won. And all of their desires are going to come first because they've been with us the whole time. They're also going to have weapons and stuff. And they're also our dudes. I don't know how much that matters to these people. Probably not that much at this point. But we're going to be promising a lot of stuff that belongs to a lot of people in Westeros that are still going to be surviving and still going to be there and that we still would want to be on our side and still would want to have bargaining chips to use to add to our pile in the first place. And so, yeah, it seems like this is going pretty well, but how well is it really going? 
And Dorn is such a traditional place. Like I said, Dorn was really excited about being able to have the mantle of this place and carry this long, it's, they have a very long history of maintaining their kingdom in the way that it is versus everyone else. All of the confusion that's happened in Westeros has basically stayed outside of Dorne, separate, whether naturally or by, by design. By design mm-hmm. They've been able to prioritize that and he's trying to continue to prioritize that and that's why she thought and that's why john's thinking the same thing now basically smart people are thinking this yeah you guys are doing a pretty good job but i mean how much does it matter that these people win because at the end of the day there's only like four or five of you that are really that historically harmoniously naturally by the home of this planet, what it seems to want, actually a part of this. The rest of you are just being paid to be here. So how much does it really matter? Well, and they're relying so much on old stories of Rhaegar Targaryen. And like, I think that a lot of his bid just relies heavily on like a lot of these old stories and some of these old loyalists and some of these old friends that he's had who they think John's been dead for ever and a half but in reality he's been like somewhere else trying to cook up this plan um but when you look at who who they're going up against so there's a line in here when they're talking about stannis it's like they're talking about he's like the time is ripe for him like this is the time for him to come and do this he could never do this when robert was alive or even when renly was alive but now it says stannis was too harsh and cold a man to inspire much in the way of loyalty and so, sure, John Con and Fagon are working with sellswords. Fagon seems to be like a pretty brash, like he's, he's here to hang, like he's here to do some stuff. So he feels like, like he's young and brash and things like that. Um, but I think that, uh, it's not him that we're supposed to lose confidence in. No, but you know, the precariousness of like, the the fact that it's so swords and the fact that he doesn't really have yeah. a lot to go off of other than like these old this is the time to do that because there's just there's not a lot of strength they're kind of running through these different alliances and there's just like there's not a, a central power necessarily right now and so they can swoop in with these a little bit shakier promises yeah that's why they're doing it in the first place yeah it's the perfect time and for hopefully it hopefully it's gonna play off you know pay off for them but I think that yeah a lot of that is gonna really hinge on on Dorn and you know now that Quentin's out of the picture is he out of, wait did he did that already happen in this not yet okay not through. <laughs> okay I can remember now that he will eventually be out of the picture you know what how is that going to sway the conversation for the folks that for Dorn who's you know behind him so I think that John Con and whoever else is helping him make his decisions not sure if anyone will be at that point. We don't know yet. May be forcing Dorn to make a decision with what they're doing with Arianne outside of Storm's End. Oh, so and you the think that they're going to maybe like... This is more wind stuff, by the way. Some sort of hostage situation? I don't know. Interesting. I don't know. But I'm curious. I honestly don't know what she could be going into. But for me, it seems like a good opportunity to involve a very important person in something, especially if you need the help. Well, if you need the help to take Storm's End, if you need a decoy, some kind of diversion, a procession from a very important place that can't be fucked up, or if you need to, like I said, change Doran's mind in some way, 
Although using at this point, that kind of strength would not be a good plan. I don't think. But before that's interesting because before she goes, there's so much talking and deliberation. They're finding out so much from her. Well, and there's a lot of like, why are you doing this yeah. kind of thing? Mm-hmm. There's she's, no reason. And, she's like, I need to find out for myself. And the part of Arianne that's driving her forward is the part of Arianne that is Arianne. Less mm-hmm. about logic. The, yeah. the part of Arianne that might give people margins to use her for. Interesting. So I could see that just because, yeah, there's so much forewarning of like, literally you have nothing to gain from going to do this other than like to see things for yourself. Right. Interesting. Right. Forcing their hand. Right. But then you, then you think about Daenerys showing up in the middle of all of this. I mean, cause some of the, mm-hmm. the loyalties that Dorne is going to potentially have to Fagon is like a familial tie. Yeah. And so. If that's a thing, but also just, just the rest of it. The rest of the fact that we might not have anyone else to, to side with or strategies that might not be in everyone's favor. It's like you were saying, there's so many parts moving right now that it makes sense for them to do this. It's the same for everyone, basically. It's it's the same for everyone that is in the position to, to gain something from it. It's happening all over. We've seen it all throughout the story. We've seen it with the small folk. We've imagined through Feast for Crows, the amount of people that were gaining advantage on each other and places that have been around for so long. We got to see it through the, through the perspective of inns that have been on the sides of rivers that have been there forever, that have gone through different people ruling this place. And that yet still in this moment, just with a little bit of hostility, a little bit of shake up, the amount, the, the power dynamics change completely based on the people that are willing to take it. Mm-hmm. Usually right. in that sense. And then however long that can last against the people that are well organized enough to take it back from them. Right. So it's like a constant. Yeah. Teeter totter. Right. Unless forth, someone really powerful is saying the Iron Throne is able to hold it's, justice for everyone else. You want to break. I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I want to break, break the wheel. And then what? And then what's the plan? Well, we need someone like Tyrion or. I don't know. Everyone's idea of someone political to Thank do it. I don't, really, I don't know who, the answer to or that. Or somebody though. who's young and who it's like, um, they're talking about Fagon. They're like, the lad won't much like the idea of staying, staying safe. I tell you that he wants to be in the thick of things. You know, I love that ending. Yeah. That was so perfect because it seemed like he was going to tell him the plan was not going to be the plan anymore. And it was so, he was so decisive about it. It would have been such a disappointment for him it's to like, be I like, I'm going to lead it. Yeah. He's like, he's, Fagon is much more, uh, what's the word he uses? Instead of, he's like, young Griff was a little bit more go with the flow. Oh, and yeah. Show. He, he's kind of more princey. Yeah. Basically. He's got an ego now. Yeah. Or, that he's funny. not in hiding anymore. That was so funny. So great. And it's subtle. And honestly, I bet, I don't know. Let me go into my brain. I don't think I was that unexcited about it. I was going to say, I bet I was unexcited about the flow of uh, Tyrion's storyline. I, If anything, I understood why a lot of people weren't. I think that Tyrion's I still. Tyrion's storyline? In, uh, in dance. Yeah. When he's, oh, interesting. Just this plan in general. I think a lot of folks probably well, were like, could there be something so else? Well, because so much on like, is Fagon even who he, if he says is he is? Is he even real? So will like, it matter in the who end? Cares? Right. So it's gotta matter in the end because, although that's, I mean, that's what I was trying to say at the beginning of this episode is mm-hmm. like, George R. R. Martin is anno- like sometimes annoying. It's like, this is sure. sometimes like a big epic fantasy. It's like, we get it. There's so many cool different people and lands and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. But when you think about in the grand scheme of things, it's so much more interesting if Daenerys comes in, guns a blazing, and it's like, hey, you're not the last target. Yeah. So like, the, you <laughs> that's know, one way to make it crazy, but yeah, you're that's right. Like to me, that's so that, that adds like such an interesting complex layer. And so 
this whole like Fagon plot is going to, to me, this is a foil for Daenerys. Like at the end of the day, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what this whole thing is moving towards. And so and it's just more complexity. It builds out the whole reality of the power vacuum that's being created. Right. Like people will be trying to fill it. And is Fagon going to win the day? No. Is John Carnington going to be like Maybe. the guy? No. I don't know, man. Absolutely I liked not. him in this chapter though. For sure. Lot. It's a great chapter. I feel like he's going to be in game or and something. I really, really love kind of the rose. Like I really, really love all of his back thinking back to like the battle of the bells and, and Rhaegar and it was all, awesome. It was really we, beautifully I like him. written. I like him. I, I want him more. But he's not him. the guy at the end of the day. No, but you he's, know? he's good. So that's it's like it's, you said that he didn't want anyone to die. His plan worked. It was just satisfying to read his chapter. I was but very that's satisfied. Why it's easy to just think it's like, who cares? <laughs> right. Well, he's, he might just die anyway. He's like, hey, he does have great skill. So it, it makes sense that George would make him feel like that to me because he did it on purpose. Yeah. He wanted us to feel that way. It makes <laughs> sense. He'd make us feel that way. He even use words like the throat. It's like, come on, it has a throat. And yeah, we're going right up it. You're not I supposed to. It, he manipulated us. And then he was like struggling with grayscale at the end. It's like, yeah. why? And then at the very, very end, the way that this chapter ends hits so hard. Um, Because the momentum's building about what they're going to do next. He's like, I want to do it 10 on the 11th day we out. Like ten days time. Oh, I love that. Yeah. What? How decisive is that? Like, by the way, we have this long to get it done. We're doing it. We're doing the decision like that. And so, um, blah blah blah. They decide they're going to go off, and then uh, Fagon comes in. He knows exactly what's going on. He's like, I know what you're planning. John Con's like, I'm trying so hard not to be upset that you found out about everything. Um, you know, we're gonna go. Who told you this? Blah, blah, blah. Um, Homeless Harry, did he tell you this? He says, he did actually, the prince said, but I won't. Harry's an old mate, isn't he? You have have the right of it, my lord. This is the important part. I want the attack to go ahead, dot, 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 with one change. I mean, to lead it. And it's like, whoa, like, let's get somebody up in here who's like ready to fight and who's like reckless and who's just like out here for reasons that we don't really know if they're true or false or not. And he's going to like... You know, I don't know. But yeah, I, I'm less annoyed about him than the Sparrows and probably also the Tyrells. The list goes on of people I'm less annoyed or more annoyed about than these guys. But like whose storylines you're not here for? Not necessarily that, just of who I think would be interesting to see win or at least have a little bit of victory over other people. Yeah. Because uh, the, the feeling, I don't know, these, these guys, at least the perspective right now, but. Again, I'm speaking mainly just for one person, and he's representative of all these other people, including self swords, and that's not going to be good. Mm-mm. I'm not thinking about the whole picture. Damn no, it! No, but it, I mean, damn it! This chapter it's is confusing. It's so epic and well, so and down somebody, to earth at the same time. And you look at somebody like John Con, who's like so deeply wrapped up in his personal narrative and like mm-hmm. his personal vendetta, and there's there's this like huge wildly complicated plot that's unfolding and it all just like boils down to this guy who's just like doing feeling guilty because this man that he loved he betrayed him based or he like didn't do give him his all and so Mm -hmm. it's like all of this kind of stuff is unfolding because of that it's like it's so personal and it's so like you can't help but be like 
Yes. And like John Connington, I feel like he looks at himself and this situation like, I'm going to do right this time. And he's like, I'm going to be the best and I'm going to come in here and not going to kill anybody right away. And we're going to attack them. And we're going to like all these tactics. We've been dealing with somebody like Cersei Lannister who's just like wilding out 24-7, you know? It's exciting. So you can kind of get caught up in the momentum of what's happening in this chapter. So, and then, well, okay. And then in the preparation for it, it's like, what's going to happen next? And you remember, it's like, oh my gosh, we have that winds of winter, those winds of winter sample chapters that kind of talk about what is happening with this. So we get the door inside and that's Mm -hmm. like such a key question here that we don't know the answer to. And then we get some of the door inside, but that doesn't answer any questions. So I would recommend for folks, if you are reading this chapter, just also check out those two winds of winter chapters right now, because then it's just going to like, it enriches so much of like what could potentially happen. Or what does happen, but how we get there, we just don't know. It also points out the things that are important just by seeing all the different supporting evidence that we have. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's cool. And I like how it it matches the strategy, how we would land here and then eventually need to take Storm's End, right. not only for the sake of the geography of having access to stuff, but also because the protection that we would need or that we could use rather if stuff started to go south. These are real plans. And it makes you think about Westeros and scale and their plan at scale and just everything at scale. And we're talking about the, all the different families that are involved that are from the different corners of this place that have their own history, but also just the people, the people that are living in the places between that. And we have to, either put them on our side or defeat us. And we have to do it from a place that actually works. So in order to actually be a contender among the list of people that are contending, again, they don't have a name yet. They were nameless potential Stannis foes at this point. Right. They have to, they have to put their feet down in the physical lands of Westeros, start loading ships in and moving their people and to actually fight. And it's cool to see the beginning of it like Mm -hmm. this and to know that it's so meaningful from this vantage point. And there's a lot of discussion, like how the particulars of how that's going to happen. And we are introduced to a lot of, not introduced. I mean, there's so many characters in this chapter that we already knew, but we hadn't seen in a long time or like Mm -hmm. spent a long time with, but we see a lot of like the leaders in his, like who's, who's in John Con's like. Who are here at least. Yeah. Yeah. Like circle of people who he's Mm -hmm. like trusting to lay it out. And they're not very familiar to us at all. Right. But and that's so, who it is. That's the who's who. You know, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that he's willing to keep pushing if he finds out that Aegon is fake? Yeah, because I don't think he... Like we were kind of talking about he doesn't have a lot to lose. And I don't think that... That's a really good question. I... Like, would he just help someone else and try to just keep Griffin's roost? But who does he help? Or try to get treatment. But Griffin's Roost isn't enough. I mean, he says that so many times in this chapter. It's like a little small. He's like, this is like a little small guy. This is a small castle for a small guy, basically. I want, I need, want, I need something bigger. So this is about life for him. He's like, I've been living life and life is just about, I'm just going to take it. I don't know. I mean, I think it's very personal. So yeah, Fagon ends up being not real and it's, and he finds that out, you know, does he continue to back him just to like mix things up or like stir the pot? I don't know, because I guess so much of his motivation is for Rhaegar, who he, like, you know, so if it's if this person has no familial ties to Rhaegar Targaryen, then how is that something? I don't know. That's a good question. It really matters. It seems like we're 
just getting, you know, you and I are just having the conversation about this guy and like, how interesting could this guy be? But it's like you were saying earlier, he's right. Interestingly at the middle of this point, like mm-hmm. it, it kind of hinges on him, his involvement with this stuff. Right. So he's not going to marry himself and they're not going to allow Aegon to be married to anyone except Daenerys. Daenerys Targaryen. That's just so not going to happen, right? You feel no. that in your bones. Yeah. It's just that, not going to happen. Yeah. What if it is a thing? Or, or do, what if she, do you think that she'll get letters about it and be like, I, like, what is this? You were talking about the, the layer of complexity that would add. Would it not also be even more satisfying in an almost modern day? Like that person doesn't deserve that to be a thing or that controversy is not real. They're faking it together sort of way. If she has to deal with all of the pressure of not being the last Targaryen, both metaphysically in her, in her head, but also from everyone else. And we also know that he's not even real for she's some reason. She's got dragons though. So even if she's, even so if, doesn't he, matter. even if he's real, mm-hmm. you know, that's, and that's something that they're talking about here. They don't have dragons. He's, he is the last he's the dragon, dragon they have. you know, like that's, yeah. the, they don't have. He's like, we're going to need you to start acting like a dragon more. You right, need to leave right. this fight. Can you that, roar as well? <laughs> that's the trump card there, you know, so. She's saying it doesn't matter because she has her three dragons. That's right. And I think mm. that like I, she's more powerful than him. Has like true loyalists. Okay. He's with working with Sellswords. That's what we've been saying this whole episode. And so. Mm-hmm. So really it serves as a a decoration along the way and a, a nice temptation for the land of Dorne as well. And whoever else they reach out to. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's going to blow up in our face soon or late. If if they're going to be effective or if they're going to fall apart the way that people expect to sell swords might. Right. Right. Well, I think it all hinges on kind of what ends up happening at Storm's End. If yeah. That go, oh, of course. If, you yeah. know, in regard, it's not even necessarily about if they take it or not. It's like how that happens. If they if they do take it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be effective in their offense. It might just mean right. that they're annoyingly around for a while. Right. Right. Like sort of how Stannis seems to some folks because he right. still is able to <laughs> hold Doran stuff. Is, period. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then we have to send people there and then Marcella's there. That's also annoying. Dorne has their, their people are ready. Their troops are ready. Again, we've learned about the Dornish infantry and anecdotally we understand that they're Dorne, but that we shouldn't necessarily think that they're just going to sweep the field of whoever else they go against. So keeping all that in mind, that also adds more confusion to mm-hmm. the matter. Yeah. It's complicated. <laughs> it's interesting though. Are you, are you on their side at this point? Whose side would you say that you're on? My side that I'm on is what I was, my side that I'm on is like, I, I just, my, I'm on the pessimistic side. But who is the pessimist then? Like the who? pessimist is me. Like this is all very interesting and is gonna really add interest to Daenerys's eventual Daenerys's landing in Westeros. Hmm. How that happens? Who lives? Who dies along the way? Mm, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. Did it make um, you care more about these side quests? Seeming side quests diversional chapters. I know that the reading order made me 
appreciate it a lot more than before. Just about just in regard to the cluster of of chapters like this around certain the certain area around three quarters of the way through Dance of Dragons, it just kind of broke it up a little bit. For right, me, right, which I liked. It like orients this in in the actual story a little bit better when we're getting whisperings of this happening in the other chapters. It's and just kind of like more typical, just, like yeah, the rest, like the, the way he does it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. John Connington's a really interesting guy. I love looking back at Robert's Rebellion like that. I just think that there's so much romance in my mind towards all of that because that's the beginning of our story, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that that's really fun. John Connington, I mean, the last time he was in Westeros, really, and all of his experience, like that was his life, you mm-hmm. know? And so we've spent a little bit of time with him over the course of the last couple of books, but like this is, he's like an OG guy who's still out here. And he used to be a Lord of this place. There's not a lot of people who are left who were so intimately involved with kind of what things were like before all of this went down. So that's a really cool perspective. To it have. is. Yeah. You know, I just, I don't think, I don't think that he's like gonna necessarily be like an end game, end game okay. player. I really appreciate the late game game on behalf of, of George R. <laughs> R. Martin though. And, yeah. and the way that he executed this, especially being, like I said, a person that we've been spending time with up until this point, but to do it through his perspective and to sort of change things around for me and get me a little bit further excited in their potential. Because like I was saying before, I wasn't necessarily meaning that I was annoyed by the boat ride and the way that the story decided to go, but you have to make a decision and that's the decision that he made to write the story. And I don't know. I didn't necessarily see it coming. Mm-hmm. The the fake Targaryen thing mm-hmm. and it being not necessarily real mm-hmm. and being a plan by someone like Illyrio just pisses me off. It's like, come on, this guy, he's not even, he can't even physically move. He's just rich. Yeah. That's the whole thing. People are literally carrying him. So George is really making me feel it. And it's so annoying, but wrapped up inside of it is this whole thing and wrapped up inside of all that other stuff too is that whole thing. I don't think that we've gotten the depth of self-exploration through the Greyjoys yet, but there might be some hope for that. Might it, There might be for them. I'm not sure. I would hope so. Yeah. If they're going to stick around, if they're going to stick around, really make me feel something. I don't necessarily need to relate on the account of how you feel about tactics and stuff, but it really, it really helps. It really helps for me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I don't mean to be like dismissive of John Kahn's journey, whether his role to play is like as big or as small as somebody like, I feel like I kind of like the same energy that I have towards like Dorn, but like for some reason don't have towards the Greyjoys. It's I like a know. knowing energy. It's, yeah. You know that it's, <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's supposed to make you feel something, but you're like, is it going to? Right, right. Or are you just promising that it will? So, I'm not trying to dismiss it. It's a, So anyway, but... I don't know. It's interesting. It's, I like having this conversation in like the grand, like the broader scope of kind of what's actually going to happen. And we've been saying this a lot on the podcast, but we're at this like very end game stuff. And so we can ask these like very broad questions in a way that we weren't able to before. So. Owns the chapter. Uh, now it's time to talk about our favorite parts. Honorable own to the small council, I guess, of Fagon for being at this point. And dividing their, they're already thinking about, they're like, we have to get people to have a little bit of luster on them to put in the King's Guard. Duckfield's not really the kind of person that we're hoping to, to promise these as favors to court favors later from other people. Just on top of it, honorary own, before they even really do anything. 
<laughs> just the, already the poly politics coming in. My own, I want to give it to um, John Connington's description of Battle of the Bells and just kind of this whole thing that he goes through, which is literally the whole reason why he does anything. And Take so me there. I'm just going to read it. He had lost it all at Stony Sept in his arrogance. Robert Baratheon had been hiding somewhere in the town, wounded and alone. John Connington had known that, and he had also known that Robert's head upon a spear would have put an end to the rebellion. Then and there. He was young and full of pride. How not? King Eris had named him Han and given him an army, and he meant to prove himself worthy of that trust, of Rhaegar's love. He would slay the rebel lord himself and carve a place out for himself in all the histories of the Seven Kingdoms. And so he swept down on Stony Sept, closed off the town, and began to search. His knights went house to house, smashed in every door, peered into every cellar. He even sent men crawling through the sewers, yet somehow Robert had eluded him. The townsfolk were hiding him. They moved him from one secret bolt hole to the next, always one step ahead of the king's men. The whole town was a nest of traitors. At the end, they had the usurper hidden in a brothel. What sort of king was that who would hide behind the skirts of women? Yet whilst he ser- the search dragged on, Eddard Stark and Hosser Tully came down upon the town with a rebel army. Bells and battle followed, and Robert emerged from his brothel with a blade in hand and almost slew John on the steps of the old sept that gave the town its name. For years afterward, John Connington told himself he was not to blame. Blop, dot, 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 dot. Damn. I just think, like, that those paragraphs are really awesome. Yeah. And this stuff haunts him. And there we see his all of his motivation. So own to that. He must have been so mad when Robert came out with the blade. It's like, oh my, oh, you're going to fight now? Right. It's kind of like, you know, <laughs> it's kind of like in sports. Like when there's, there's like some moments of just like, you Habs know. Happens Halo all the time. Yeah. <laughs> all the time. Like, you know, that person's going to be thinking about the fact that they missed that free throw. Yeah. Until the day they yeah. die. It's going to haunt them. Oh, yeah. It's kind of that same thing. Oh, so. yeah. And it's like you're getting chased and you're almost dead. And then your boys show up behind you. hear yeah. Like your own grenades going off behind yeah. you. You're like, oh, yeah, by the way, I wasn't scared in the first place. Right. I wasn't running at all. It's kind of <laughs> like what that was. Exactly. So that's my own. Man. Do you think, what do you think he's willing to do now? Now, now with all this in context and, you know, he was thinking about, Tywin Lannister and he was told after, at that point what Tywin yeah. would have been willing to that Miles Toyn told him that that paragraph that long paragraph after that was was a bit haunting of mm-hmm. what what Tywin would have been capable of doing so keeping that in context do you think that he's going to be in the position to do something like that again and he might be we know him like this and he might be the purveyor of so much grief and devastation just well, we don't almost, even know, almost inadvertently just because he doesn't want to fail again. We don't even know if that would have worked in the first place. Like, would that have taken the rebellion down? Like, we don't know. If Robert had died, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. So, maybe. But, I, I mean, we see it this, in this chapter. Like, he's pretty nice. Yeah. The people. I, yeah, so. I know. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know a person where that begins and ends with people. Someone like Tywin. I guess you could probably judge from his demeanor, but you could say the same about other folks, mm-hmm. I guess, and maybe they wouldn't be willing to do it. I was trying to think of someone, and the first person that came to mind was Elena Tyrell, but I feel like she'd be willing to do that or stuff like Daenerys. too. That's a good point, you know. But I've known her, you know, I've known her since the first book, and she—I know that she's an empathetic person. So my first thought isn't that she would do that to people that don't necessarily deserve it, even if they were hiding people. I mean, she's basically living with people that are like that. Her sure. whole city is full but of people that are basically hiding the fact that they want slaves and hate her. If what and she all that ends stuff. up doing, if what we see 
as always, if what we see happen in the show happens in any semblance of a way, Mm -hmm. she does do that. Yes. So. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. So we, I mean, like, that would be so unsatisfying for us, but maybe it might get them something that they want. But it it might be something sort of reflective of the rest of their story. It could be like a middle version. It's like, John Con, you weren't enough for Rhaegar. You're not enough for this. And you you hurt so many people trying to be and still didn't work. It's tragic. God, that's some tough, tough soup to swallow. How do you know, just for future reference, how do you know if you're not good enough? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, just beforehand. You just reach for a star and yeah, fall anyway. Right, right. Beautiful. You don't. That's um, my own, by the way, his self-reflection in that moment. Oh, okay. I don't have Ooh, the quote written down. What a nice – that was so cool that you – your comment off my own tied into – was your own. Oh, you like that? Yeah, that was really fancy. Oh, thanks. I rose too high, loved too hard, dared too much. I tried to grasp it. Uh, here it is. I rose too high, loved too hard, dared too much. I tried to grasp a star, overreached, and fell. Fell. It feels like something, you know those like live, laugh, love things that people have in their houses? Yeah. Like that feels like that But it's, it's kind of negative though. I know, but like so to me. So melancholy. <laughs> to me, it has that same, same kind energy. of cadence. Yeah. Oh, the cadence is perfect. It's it's so beautiful. It must be cool to be an author and to not only have an interesting story to tell everyone, but also cool characters and even cooler stuff that happens. And I've often thought of this about other books and it happens, you know, it happens in a song of ice and fire, but it's not an every chapter thing, but sometimes you're reading it and George uncovered a piece of gold among like, or a, really big gem among the gold. It's imagine it's a big treasure trove is a song of ice and fire. And within are these different super treasures. And mm-hmm. this quote, that insight into the, the universe basically is really valuable and cool. So it must be so cool as an author to be like, to write, to be writing and, and then like, to also so make a quote. That's like a famous quote that people <laughs> say, right. but they attribute it to your character, which right. is really funny. All the different quotes that are attributed to Tyrion that are really fantastic. For example, like it's like, that's no things on t-shirts. Exactly. And stuff. George R. Martin didn't write that. Sorry. Right. You're, you're right about that, <laughs> <laughs> which he's really happy about. I'm sure. Yeah. But he has so many of those. Yeah. That's must be so neat. So good Isn't for you. Isn't that what all the owns are built around? <laughs> like, is that the That's point how it of owns? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty That's much. Funny. Thanks for that. Um, if you want to send in your owns or thoughts, feelings, et cetera, you can find us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook by searching Game of Owns, or you can send us an email to contact at gameofowns.com. The next chapter in our reading order that you can find at a feastwithdragons.com is the queen's guard the queen's guard you can send in your owns ahead of time for those if you'd like you can write us to contact at gameofowns.com if you don't want those to be public we understand you can also in the meantime if you want to check out our patreon zach's doing like a solo reread starting at the very beginning so as we Please go on. Set this up. (laughs) (laughs) As we travel towards the end of the series and as we inch closer and closer every day to the winds of winter being eventually being released, it's a cool exercise for you. You're literally, you're starting at the very beginning. So if you're interested uh, in listening to his solo podcast, if you think my voice is annoying, you can go check that out at (laughs) patreon.com. I was going to ask you to be on it today, by the way. (laughs) Really? Yeah. (laughs) Which wouldn't have been the solo at all. But I thought it'd be funny. Just wanted a little bit of insight. That's patreon.com slash goo. 
G-O-O. It's really good. And uh, thanks for listening. If you want to, leave us a review on the places that you listen to podcasts. That would be really nice. What else kind of stuff can we talk about with you guys now that we're at the end of the podcast here? It's just relaxing at this point. I really don't trust what's going on with the Maesters. I don't think I have enough information right now to give you my big idea, but I've been, I've been brewing on it for a while. How do you feel like Sam being coming? Like perfect. Get in there and <laughs> tell him something. And he's the perfect guy to go. I'm telling John. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but John's like way impatient for all of that to happen. Yeah. No, he'll be really impatient about those that, like, people being doing a that thing. happens over, literally overnight. Sam's been gone for like 15 minutes and he's like, why isn't he back yet? Are you back yet? <laughs> Are you done? You might be onto something. There's some, it's weird. It's weird. And I don't think that it's, I think that it's going to be one of the big ones. I don't think that it's insignificant. And I don't know. This one's probably, this guy's probably the worst of them. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know much about him. Maybe I'm totally wrong and just sparking up the wrong tree because they seem mysterious and because I secretly want to be one of them. <laughs> Do I? Yeah. Maybe, or at least an aspect of them for sure. But I think that Sam's the, the right guy to go in there for sure. But not just because he'll tell John, but because John and him and all the other things that he's gone through has shaped who he is. And I think that the kind of guy who's taking down a white and can live the tell of the tale and continue to stand tall and continue to try to do things after that. What am I talking? Who am I kidding? Like he, he would have to, you wouldn't just fall into yourself. Basically the point is a guy like Sam with the track record, track record that he has being in old town, being potentially tempted by people that think that they might have something to offer him. Hello. He's been beyond the wall as a wildling girlfriend you're going to have to think of some really creative shit. Don't you think? Yes. I Honestly, I haven't literally not given that much thought to it. Okay. Well, I think we're going to have to keep thinking about it. Yeah. I think, I think it's right. going to, if you have an idea, email us about that too. Because none of us know. So, yeah. I mean, you could come up with the thing that ends up being the thing. You might be able to guess the right answer. That's I don't big know. Theory. Thanks for hanging out with us though. And thanks for hanging out with me. Always. We'll be back really soon with the Queen's Guard.